Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. This episode is a special episode we are calling the Big Political Special and features a panelist of rhetoric scholars who focus on a range of topics related to political discourse in America. More on that in a bit. Last week, the Big Rhetorical Podcast debuted the Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival 2020, the digital future of rhetoric and composition. I want to thank all of you out there for listening to these brilliant podcast episodes, which are led by podcasters who devoted their time and their effort during this exceptional summer to a project that I hope builds community and extends conversations about rhetoric and composition in the digital sphere. Thanks to Rhetoricity, Rhetorically Speaking, Reverb, Writing Remix Podcast, Chiroticast, and Global Rhetorics Podcast for taking part in the carnival. And a special thanks to keynote speaker Dr. James Chase Sanchez, who provided valuable insight into the future of the discipline on the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I am happy to humbly announce that the success of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival means that the carnival will be an annual event, and we hope to extend our community of rhetoric and composition podcasts by including podcasts who couldn't join us this year, podcasts we overlooked, and podcasts we didn't know about. Look for more information on the Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival 2021 early next year. The political climate in America is turbulent, to say the least. The rhetoric employed by our president stokes fear and breeds anger among his supporters, tactics he used to win the 2016 election, with a little help from Russia, obviously. What has rhetoric taught us about these tactics, and what can it teach us going forward? Coronavirus, racial injustice, and a depleted economy are just some of the issues voters will consider when they head to the polls in November. In the last two weeks, the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention took place, with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris accepting the Democratic ticket nomination, and Donald Trump and Mike Pence accepting the Republican nomination for re-election. On today's episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, three rhetoric scholars discuss rhetoric's role in current American discourse. Dr. Jennifer Murcia is a historian of American political rhetoric. She writes about American political discourse, especially as it relates to citizenship, democracy, and the presidency. Jennifer has published three books about political rhetoric, Founding Fictions, The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. She's been called probably the leading authority on Trump's rhetoric by the Austin American Statesman, and her book, Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump, has been highly recommended by Politico, called a must-read by Salon, and one of the best books of the summer and the most anticipated books of 2020 by LitHub, 
and one of the most important political books of this perilous summer by the Washington Post. She is a 2016 recipient of the Texas A&M Association of Former Students Distinguished Achievement Award in Teaching, the highest student award given to faculty for teaching at Texas A&M University. I am surrounded by Republicans, and so I have lots of opportunities to talk to them. Um, and, you know, we, we, we asked our good Trump supporter about this on Thursday at our weekly happy hour, and he dismissed Bannon being arrested out of hand. He said, you know, it's the, the, the SDNY, it's the most corrupt, liberal, out to get Trump, you know, district in the entire United States. I don't believe any of it. Um, and, and I think that that is very consistent with what we know about motivated reasoning and, um, you know, selective attention and, you know, appeals to hypocrisy and, and how all of that is sort of functioning in our public sphere right now. He just denied it entirely. He did, he thought it was a setup and, you know, just the Trump derangements syndrome, um, you know, in effect, he didn't believe it at all. Donnie Johnson Sakai is an assistant professor of rhetoric and writing at the University of Texas at Austin, where he teaches courses in environmental risk communication, information design, and user experience design. He is a senior researcher with Detroit Integrated Vision for Environmental Research through Science and Engagement, Diverse. Previously, he served as an executive board member for the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition, which works to achieve a clean, healthy, and safe environment for Michigan's most vulnerable residents in alignment with the principles of environmental justice. His research centers on the dynamics of environmental public policy deliberation, environmental justice, and environmental community-based participatory research. He is currently working on a monograph entitled Evasive Species, Communities, Invasion Ecology, Crisis, which focuses on invasive species and environmental public policy deliberation. And it was really incumbent upon me to try to figure out how to sort of take that work that I was doing outside of the university and to marry it with the, the work that I was learning in the university. So I think moving forward, one of the things that we might think about is we might think about how we can sort of build a foundation for people or for students of rhetoric to do this type of political work in the future. Um, otherwise, if we don't pay enough attention to that, then we're going to be back here asking the same question again and again and again. Ryan Scannell is an associate professor of rhetoric and writing in the Department of English at San Jose State University. He is the author or editor of five books, including Conceding Composition, A Crooked History of Composition's Institutional Fortunes, and Faking the News, What Rhetoric Can Teach Us About Donald J. Trump. Dr. Scannell has also published numerous essays in academic and popular outlets on rhetoric, writing education, and political and public discourse. Rather than having her sitting down and sort of cropping her from the, the chest up so you couldn't see that she was disabled, that she, she's a double amputee, they showcased that, right? And I was trying to think back on 
any candidacy, any campaign, any time in my life or even before where disability got treated as a thing that represents our country well, rather than being a thing that we sort of tuck off in the corner. And I found that really heartening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, the Big Political Special. Uh, let's start off with uh, introductions. First, we have Dr. Jennifer Murcia. Uh, from, uh, Jennifer, tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Jennifer Murcia. I'm an associate professor at Texas A&M University. Excellent. We also have Dr. Johnson Seke. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I am an assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of Rhetoric and Writing. Excellent. And Dr. Ryan Scannell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I am a newly uh, promoted associate professor in the Department of English at San Jose State University. So in our current moment, when we're recording today, um, it is the night uh, that the RNC starts. Last week, we had the Democratic National Convention, which was virtual for the first time ever. And it was a bit weird, but the jobs got done that needed to get done. Kamala Harris was introduced as the vice presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket. We're just under 70 days to the election. So here's a question to the group. What does this election mean for the future of our democracy? My inclination is to kick this one to Jen because <laughs> she has been on the talking circuit as she's been out peddling her new book, uh, Demagogue for President. So I feel like she's probably been asked this question um, lots of times or some version of it. <laughs> yeah, I think there's lots of ways you can answer the question. I mean, one way is to say, you know, what are the parties saying is at stake uh, for democracy. Um, and then probably another way of answering the question is to say, as scholars, what would we say is at stake for democracy? Um, and and the, the answers might be different, <laughs> or actually they might be the same. It's uh, <laughs> one of those moments in history, I think. Um, you know, so if you walked, watched the DNC last week, um, you know, they were... Not as extreme as you might find, for example, on Twitter, um, where content tends to be pretty outrageous and extreme. But they certainly noted that we were at an inflection point for democracy, that there were stark choices um, to be made between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Uh, and that's not atypical for <laughs> presidential conventions or, or national conventions. Um, you know, typically presidents will narrate a nation in crisis and um, insert themselves as the right hero for the moment. But, you know, if you pay attention to the scholarship of um, political scientists or international relations scholars who study democratic erosion, democratic backsliding, um, if you've read the book, How Democracies Die, then you probably know that, um, you know, 
people are very concerned about rising fascism in the United States, um, definitely rising authoritarianism, the scale um, that shows democratic backsliding. We have hit many of the markers. Um, you know, people are coming in to watch the election this year from um, international observation uh, agencies <laughs> to make sure that things go right. Um, and, you know, it does seem like it's a crisis of democracy. And so, um, you know, part of that crisis is the democratic process itself. Part of it is that democratic norms are not being followed, that they're in fact being threatened. So, you know, in terms of the outcome of the election, who wins and who loses, I think there's there's definitely a question about the viability of democracy in America, but also just in terms of what we're seeing in terms of violating democratic norms. Um, you know, we'll see if people accept the results of the election, whether it's the party leadership on both sides or whether it's the people themselves. Um, there's lots of open questions right now about the viability of democracy in America. So to just build on that, I think um, what I would add is that that last part that Jen said about what the viability of democracy in America, that's never been up for question in our lifetimes, right? There was never the question of whether or not the peaceful transition of power would happen. There was never the question of whether or not the major party leaders would accept the validity of the vote. The closest I can remember is George W. Bush's administration, there were questions raised largely by people like Bill Maher about whether or not Bush would accept those. But there was never any direct indication for Bush that that was a question. Whereas now our sitting president has said multiple times uh, in multiple venues, in multiple media, uh, that he, if he loses, it means that it was an invalid election. So I think the the question, what does this election mean for our future democracy, really is a question of like, do democratic norms continue after this election? And I don't think we have a good answer to that question, uh, though I do agree that there's lots of scholarship and there are lots of learned analyses that suggest that we are in a I like the, the phrase inflection point, uh, but definitely in a critical moment. Donnie, anything to add on this thought? I mean, I can I can add to um, what has been said. I mean, I, I generally agree with what has been said by both uh, Jennifer and Ryan. In my mind, the real way to sort of measure the future of American democracy isn't necessarily in 2020, but rather what the country looks like in 2024. And the reason why I bring this up is um, I've been following for quite some time this political scientist named uh, Rachel Bitkoffer, um, who since about 2017 has been looking at the, the sort of phenomenon of, of party sorting. And what has essentially happened is it's this way of saying that over time, each of the parties are becoming, for lack of a better word, uh, politically homogenous, right? So you're not seeing as many liberal Republicans or uh, as many uh, conservative Democrats, right? And, and part of the reason why I'm really interested in this is I'm interested in what do the parties look like in 2024? In particular, what does the Republican Party look like in 2024? And what type of political actions are possible? 
I think right now it's a little bit too early to say what the future of American democracy looks like, because I think everything right now is so chaotic. Um, but I'm also interested to sort of see what happens, you know, in 2024 or, or after 2020 when we don't necessarily have to deal with things like COVID or when Donald Trump either is no longer president or is potentially, hopefully not leaving the White House in 2024. Um, that's when I think we can truly begin to start to think about what does the future of American democracy look like? Um, I think right now, We've been on a trend where political alliances are, are changing and they're very, very fragile and they're they're moving in, in directions that I think make it impossible for both parties to work together. And I, I think that that's really where our, our focus should be in terms of the future of American democracy, per se. So I would build on what Jennifer and Ryan have said, but. That particular issue has been on the uh, the, the, the back of my mind. So let's pivot a little bit. We've talked about the election for the future of our democracy, but what about the election for the future of our discipline, for rhetoric? But I think it should be ground shaking. I think for the first time in my life, rhetoric, along with history, is probably has never been more relevant. Like Understanding how messages work, understanding how arguments in the world work. I am of the opinion and have been for a long time that a lot of our work is really important, but has often been sort of myopic in the sense that that we as a field have often considered argument and persuasion in terms of sort of ideals, what we expect would happen in an ideal world. And so a lot of the discussion that happened like prior to Trump's first election, right? So 2015, 2016 was he's not living up to our sense of what he should be doing. It's not legitimate. It's not um, how are people falling into this trap? And it's continued to be that thing, right? Both both sort of in the public at large, but also in the field. Like, how is he doing this? How does this, it's not fair that he would play on people's emotions or whatever. Um, and so I think as a field, we have sometimes fallen into the trap of ruling what he does out of bounds. And I think that we as a field are actually really well positioned to understand what he's doing and why he's doing it and need to sort of move ourselves past this notion that there's legitimate and illegitimate and we're aligned with the legitimate rhetoric and, and the illegitimate rhetoric is not, that doesn't um, define us and we won't be defined by, you know, the sort of like platonic, ejection of rhetoric as a valuable thing. So ideally what I'd like to see happen is us get better at at understanding and dealing with and participating in rhetoric in the world. We've got really good tools to do that. Um, we're not always, and I think part of it, it's the scholarly thing, right? We want, we need distance. We need some time to sort of like process and analyze things. Um, but that's not the world we live in. And so, you know, I, I hate to say we should become Ciceronian again because Cicero was kind of a jerk. But there's something to be said for Ciceronian uh, rhetoric in the world as opposed to Aristotelian, which is very sort of distant and, and analytical. So here's to hoping. Who knows? I'll sort of join on with with Ryan in terms of saying that the the, the current conditions 
in my mind, leading me to believe that, you know, we, we have enough analysis. I don't think anybody's going to question our ability as a field or discipline, I should say, um, to analyze like what is happening in the world. I think um, what we haven't had enough of is actual participation in communities, forming alliances um, with people in communities in order to get work done, whether that be at the local level in terms of the city, the state, or even at the federal level. Um, one of the things that I would really like to see um, our discipline do moving forward is actually sort of participating in political activity that I think can combat a lot of the, I think, what people might describe as being um, fascism that we've seen over the past three years. So definitely more participation in, in, in communities, I think, is is the future of our discipline. Yeah, Amy Young and I have an essay coming out in the, I don't know, is it reborn, rejuvenated, <laughs> reimagined um, rhetoric and public affairs uh, issue about this, about public scholarship and uh, what our discipline ought to be doing uh, in the future. <laughs> and, um, you know, she and I are both very committed to public scholarship. I feel like I'm a practitioner of it and she's a theorist of it. You know, she's written a book on it and, and done a lot of research. And uh, one of the things that is interesting about our field in this moment is Ryan is absolutely right. And Donnie, too, right, that everything that we we know is so relevant to both how to fix what's wrong and, you know, what's wrong itself with our broken public sphere. Uh, but, you know, the rewards are not there for participating in the public. And in fact, it's, you know, a little bit scary to participate in the public sphere. You know, people get attacked and, um, and swarmed and fired <laughs> for doing those kinds of things. So, you know, in, in some ways we have to be brave, but I think that our discipline's failure to really engage with the public over the last 20 years um, has, has in fact brought some of this <laughs> brokenness into the public sphere. Um, you know, when I look at the top selling persuasion books um, on Amazon, they're all from people who practice, you know, the dark arts of persuasion. It's all about compliance gaining. It's all about manipulation. It's about forcing people to believe what you want them to believe and not at all about persuading them in the sense that, you know, we teach in our classes. Um, and <laughs> I think there's a reason for that. And, and I'm not sure I know yet, you know, why. Um, <laughs> I think probably real persuasion is harder than compliance gaining is. And people want a shortcut and they want to, you know, use language as force. And I think a lot of what we've been seeing for the last five years in American political discourse um, with tr President Trump is a, a direct result of that. You know, and it's a project that I'm working on moving forward. And I know a lot of other people are, but um, I think part of it is that our discipline hasn't really engaged in the public and we haven't taught them what we know. We keep things, um, you know, sort of uh, paywalled and there's a lot of gatekeeping and, um, you know, we're sort of an elitist institution and <laughs> I don't think that does us any favors and I don't think that it does the public sphere any favors either. And can I, I'd like to sort of build on that by also pointing out that I think that um, this particular problem is inherently pedagogical because when we sort of think about 
um, sort of the like our approaches to, to pedagogy and, and, and rhetoric programs, especially at the graduate level. There are very, very few, if any, programs that are actually um, dedicating time towards um, helping students think about how they can engage with communities effectively and responsibly. Um, when I think about my own uh, sort of education or, or becoming a scholar of rhetoric, um, a lot of the work that I do in communities is largely based upon just sort of friends who were sort of literacy sponsors when I was, you know, an undergraduate who were already doing activist work that was related to the environment. And it was really incumbent upon me to try to figure out how to sort of take that work that I was doing outside of the university and to marry it with the, the work that I was learning in the university. So I think moving forward, one of the things that we might think about is we might think about how we can sort of build a foundation for people or for students of rhetoric to do this type of political work in the future. Um, otherwise, if we don't pay enough attention to that, then we're going to be back here asking the same question again and again and again. Let's talk about Kamala Harris. She's the first woman of color to be nominated on a major party ticket. What might we say about the symbolic meaning of Kamala Harris? What sorts of attacks can she expect over the next two months? And what do those attacks say about the values and beliefs of those who use such rhetoric? Really, I mean, it reminded me very quickly of the misogyny and sexism and open hatred of Hillary Clinton as a female candidate. And I think potentially that will be a central function of of the rhetoric going forward of the attacks on her is that i think as much or more than the race issue that will become a sort of defining attack on kamala harris yeah i you know much like ryan i i, I sort of sit around and think about this question because i i, I sort of expected the attacks against uh, kamala harris um not merely because she was a woman but in particular because she was a woman of color. Um, the, the sort of value of her being on the Democratic ticket sticks out to me as important, not simply because of the sort of like what she represents as a person, but in particular how her presence on the, the ticket is a stark reminder that our press is fully incapable, um, even after 12 years of Barack Obama, um, with um, covering issues of, of race, particularly in covering issues of race that involve biracial Americans. One of the things that we saw in the press over the past two weeks was just the willingness to broadcast what are salacious racist attacks or even just like outright lies without even labeling them as lies or labeling them as being racist. So what's really interesting is, is that the press really doesn't know how to deal with this moment, especially dealing with candidates who come from complex racial backgrounds, much in the way that, you know, they probably should be talking about white people who come from complex racial backgrounds, but because Kamala Harris can't benefit from whiteness, and especially because Barack Obama can benefit from the whiteness that that is part of his family, these are not things that are going to come to the forefront of, of our conversation. So that's what I see moving forward is, is the inability of the press to actually 
talk about biracial candidates, um, the ways that I, I believe their identities merit discussion. In my book, I examine the relationship between race and gender misogyny, um, particularly in the Republican Party and the white nationalist community, um, but also, you know, just taking a look at opinion polls um, that were done just, you know, for average Americans, I guess. And it was interesting because, and Donnie, I think this goes to your point in some ways about how the press isn't really capable of covering <laughs> these issues. And and Ryan, I think this goes to your point, too, um, in some ways. But, you know, the, the news articles that reported on the misogyny against Hillary Clinton in 2016 or the the news articles that covered the ads that really just sort of roasted Trump for the misogynistic things that he said, you know, those articles were like, so obviously America isn't going to support Donald Trump. <laughs> obviously, you know, this is wrong. And then when you compared that to opinion polls, you know, the American public actually um, approved of the way that Donald Trump talked about women. And um, when you divided the nation, you know, into gender dynamics and ask them to look at the commercials, you know, that showed Trump talking about women in misogynistic ways. There was like a 20 point gap between the way that women saw those ads and the way that men did. Um, in the white nationalist community in particular, um, misogyny was rampant. Voting for Hillary Clinton was seen as the first step in eradicating white males. It was part of her program, was what they said. So, you know, I checked in with them after the Harris nomination, and wouldn't you know it, <laughs> um, all the same talking points, all the same lines, they really see this as her election will be the end of white male hood in America, uh, that it's part of a plot to destroy them. Uh, they're on edge <laughs> and uh, feeling like, you know, they're threatened and, and that the Democratic Party is coming for them. They literally believe that they will be rounded up, or at least they pretend to believe, I'm not sure, uh, that they will be rounded up, that their guns will be taken away from them, and that... Um, you know, no one will ever believe that they were murdered <laughs> by these, you know, leftists, misogynists or whatever, I guess, anti-misogynists, feminists. And, uh, you know, so it's it's dire over there in the white nationalist community, <laughs> uh, not the white nationalist community. But, you know, I talk to my Republican neighbors a lot and I ask them what they thought about her nomination. And uh, an interesting thing that I heard was. Uh, my neighbor next door was able to dissect, you know, within, I don't know, percentage points of accuracy, um, her exact genetic makeup, <laughs> where he got all this information, I have no idea. But apparently, you know, the right wing mainstream news organizations, Fox News and whatnot, are um, are spending quite a bit of time on it because he had lots more information than I did, for sure. Um, and he kept saying, you know, I'm tired of hearing that it's historic. It's historic. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Historic, whatever. 
Um, and so I think that's probably another talking point um, on right wing news organizations about her, you know, as a way of dismissing her, uh, in addition to the other ones that have been mentioned. Uh, you know, she's not really African-American. She's not really black enough. She's not really a minority. You know, this isn't really historic. Um, so all ways of, you know, sort of invoking to quote quay appeals to hypocrisy, saying that she's not what she pretends to be. Um, it's not that big a deal you know, even if she does get elected. So on the one hand, you have the sort of extremists who are like, it's such a big deal. And this is, you know, a sign of the destruction of white malehood in America. And then on the other hand, you have a, you know, impeaching her credibility and denying her standing. An interesting thing that has happened that I've watched happen on social media is the, the thing that Jen is describing, the simultaneous, this is the worst thing ever, and it's not actually a real thing. So um, for example, the questioning of whether or not she's a real African-American. Um, her one parent was born in Jamaica and the other one was born in India. And so therefore she's not a real African-American and therefore doesn't really represent the things that she says she represents. So she's, she doesn't count. On the other hand, she's also um, the most dangerous kind of of diversity. So there's uh, and Trump does this too. And and um, there's lots of of sort of research on reactionary politics and reactionary rhetoric about the simultaneous need to say Democrats are ineffectual and not very smart and uh, totally incompetent, and also they're going to round up all the white males and take all their guns and and. Um, ship them off to prison camps, which is like, I don't, how do you, how do you hold those two ideas at the same time in the way that they do? I'm not entirely sure, but it is, it is a sort of repeated habit in, in uh, reactionary rhetoric to both think of people as dangerous and, and terrifyingly efficient and also incompetent and able to do anything at the same time. And so that'll be interesting to watch play out, too. A demagogue is a politician who appeals to his or her base's fears instead of using rational arguments with them. Is Trump a demagogue? And how has uh, his successful demagoguery changed the political landscape in America? Yes, Trump is a demagogue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a, I mean, I agree. He's a demagogue. I disagree on this a little bit. I, I am inclined to consider, like, he participates in demagoguery. Jen is more willing to call him a demagogue proper than I am. But only, I mean, I don't think we disagree at a fundamental level. I think that, that for me, part of the, the question asks us, if, if he's a demagogue, then he's the problem to solve. Trump doesn't do anything on his own. I mean, without Mitch McConnell in the Senate, he's not putting all those judges in. Without Stephen Miller, without a whole a whole bunch of Republicans and conservatives, and if we're being totally honest, liberals and Democrats for a long time, Trump is, is a completely toothless, ineffectual president, right? He cannot do the things that he does if the Senate actually impeaches him for the things that are impeachable offenses. He cannot do the things that he does if he doesn't have a whole series of people who are either willing to help him or willing to advance what he's doing or willing to look the other way. So, like, 
is he a demagogue? Yeah, probably. Um, though probably about it. Yes, I agree with Jen. He's absolutely a demagogue. But demagoguery as a problem is much larger than just Trump. He he stepped into a moment. I'm I'm inclined to believe he stepped into a moment rather than creating that moment on his own. But I would also kind of put forth that I think that if you look at any sort of demagogue in history, um, they've always, whether they are sort of inherently gifted or not, they've always had to rely upon the tools of the state in order to get particular things done. So, I mean, I I think he is a demagogue, but I don't necessarily think that he's rhetorically like gifted, per se. But I don't necessarily know if you need to be inherently rhetorically gifted to be a demagogue. This is a person who's controlled the American public sphere for the last five years. Daily. Absolutely controlled what we talk about, what we think about, how we emote, how we respond. Think he is rhetorically gifted. Do you think there's strategy behind what Trump is doing? I absolutely think there's strategy behind what Trump is doing. Oh, okay. I, I wrote an entire book on it, actually. <laughs> That's fine. I mean, people write books. I'm just saying that I, I, I don't necessarily think that I, I don't look at Trump and think that he is gifted. I look at Trump and I think that he is a person who benefits from other people's craven desires or, or, or hopes for the future. I think Trump's a tool for a lot of people. I don't well, necessarily think that discounts him as a, a demagogue, but I definitely think that there are other people who make use of the fact that he has captivated so many people's attention. Both can be true, right? One, it can both be true that he is a tool of people's craven needs and that he is incredibly effective, whether intentionally or not. And that's where I think, I think Jen and I probably part ways. I don't know how intentional he is. I think he is intuitively gifted at driving a news cycle, right? Whether I don't, I don't, know that I would think of it in terms of like intentional knowing strategy sometimes maybe but but I think he's just intuitively gifted and really well practiced at driving a news cycle and he honestly often could care less about how that news cycle gets driven as long as he's the one doing the driving so I think part of the question is about whether or not intention is necessary for demagoguery or or um, strategic knowledgeable strategy is intention for demagoguery if it is then we have to question whether or not trump is capable of that if it's not then i think he can be a demagogue by virtue of his intuitive capabilities i'm not sure if you'd agree with that or not jen or how you feel about that i mean i did read your book so i should know that but <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I do think it's intentional. I do think it's strategic. Um, and I do think that he's been incredibly successful. Uh, I've been paying close attention to his rhetoric and his rhetorical strategies since November of 2015. Um, you know, as you know, probably I uh, initially got into this project because the New York Times was doing an, a week-long analysis about Trump's rhetoric, and they asked me to participate. And so I watched his rally speeches and his interviews and, you know, his tweets and all of that for a week. 
and made notes on the rhetorical strategies that I saw him use. Um, and he used the same consistently over the course of the week. And, and what I saw him do in November, late November of 2015 is what I've seen him do continuously since 2015. Um, he does some other things too. So it's not just those six things, but I have absolutely seen him do the same things over and over and over again, you know, and so Kenneth Burke called it, you know, Hitler's demagogic effectiveness and, and I'll call it his rhetorical genius because it makes a better title for a book. <laughs> in this day and age. But but it's the same thing, right? He has a, a recipe. He has a repertoire of contention, you know, to use the social movement language. Um, and he uses those things strategically. So, for example, one of the things that he does is he uses ad baculum threats of force and intimidation. Those are clearly uh, demagogic. Um, they're ways of silencing opposition so that they can't raise questions or, um, you know, so that they can't hold them accountable. And, and they're anti-democratic. They're authoritarian threats of force. Right. So one of the stories I tell in my book is the way that Trump used the phrase lock her up in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. And if you're a casual observer of Trump's rhetoric, you might remember him using lock her up. You might remember his rally crowds chanting lock her up. But if you pay close attention to the story of him and that phrase, what you realize is that his rally crowds led him on that phrase and that most of the time he told them that they didn't need to say that. Let's just beat her in November, he'd say. Uh, you know, he'd say, you know, it's not, that's not what we want to say. Well, let's just beat her. Um, or he'd laugh it off. Uh, and people were saying that to him as early as 2015, you know, well before the RNC of 2016, when it was a part of the actual convention. And he actually would intensify his ad baculum threats against Hillary Clinton in those moments in his campaign when he was the most at risk. And so there's two moments where he actually said, lock her up. One is when the world found out that Trump University was a scam. Um, you'll remember that he tried to distract our attention with an ad hominem attack against Judge Curiel in the case, saying that, you know, he didn't know if he could get a fair hearing because the judge of the case was Mexican and blah, blah, blah. So that was one st distraction strategy. The other one was to say that Hillary Clinton was so corrupt that she belonged in jail and that her attacks against him about Trump University were irrelevant and part of her dishonest campaign in general. Right. So crooked Hillary always lies. And he said, lock her up at that point. Then he stopped saying it again. And he didn't say it again um, until the Access Hollywood tape was released. And then again, when he was back up against the wall, um, he started to say, lock her up again. And then as soon as he won the election, the first time he held a celebration rally, his crowd was ch chanting, lock her up. And he said to the crowd, nah. That plays well before the election, but now we don't care, told them not to say it. So what you see there, I think, is that Trump is a very careful rhetor. He is strategic. He is able to intensify his strategies when he needs to, and he withholds certain strategies when he needs to. And I think that it requires that kind of careful study to be able to understand exactly what he's doing and why he's doing it. Uh, I think it's really easy to dismiss Trump um, as a rhetorical oddity, <laughs> and he is odd. 
Um, but I think we also, you know, would benefit from that kind of careful analysis. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. As we shift to thinking about the things that our discipline can do in relationship to demagoguery and Trump, what avenues of examination, this might be themes or genres, would you like to see rhetoricians or rhetoric study in relationship to Trump's demagoguery, especially if he wins the second term? I'm really interested right now in propaganda. You know, I'm really interested Mm -hmm. in like the dark arts of rhetoric and communication, Um, like Ryan said earlier. We have tended to examine a uh, sort of idealistic, maybe Aristotelian view of how persuasion and rhetoric works in the public sphere. And that's absolutely true with presidential rhetoric. And so I'm really interested and I have been since Trump won, um, really interested in understanding propaganda techniques and really the way that we all participate as propagandists not just Trump, but um, all of us, you know, as we communicate in the public sphere. I would absolutely agree with that. In fact, a lot of what I'm sort of thinking about and working on right now is 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 the dark arts, such as it is. Um, and when you go looking in our scholarship and the history of our scholarship about the dark arts, right? So all the ones that Jen names in her book and uh, demagoguery more generally, but you find sort of over and over and over again is that when people study, let's take Hitler as the example, because that's who I'm writing about right now. When people study Hitler, there's a sort of commonly a very careful dance to try and distance ourselves from Hitler, right? He's, he's a bad guy. We all know he's a bad guy. Um, here's what he did, and it's bad, and we should not do that is sort of the, the uh, and it, it plays out in sort of very different ways and in very in case, some cases really subtle ways, but oftentimes a, a major part of the, the scholarship is differentiating 
Hitler or Mussolini or Louis Farrakhan or uh, any other number of people from us, right? We're the good ones and they're the bad ones. And, and we should study the bad stuff because they're not like us. And we want to see what the, our enemies are doing. And I think that that is probably something that we need to, to correct. Um, and in fact, that's what I think I'm in, in the process of trying to do is to say that Trump as one example, but Hitler and uh, Mussolini and Louis Farrakhan and all those, all the people that we think of, you know, Huey Long, um, there's a whole, you know, a laundry list of them. One of the reasons that they're famous for their rhetoric is because it works. And one of the reasons it works is because all of us are participating in some way in these things, right? All of us are participating in those moments in ways that we want to let ourselves off the hook for, but in fact, we're, we're participating. We're playing along. Um, and sometimes we're playing along with people who have turned out to be history's villains. And sometimes we're playing along with history's heroes and, and it's a fascinating thing to sort of look at at how we use hero and villain to sort of distinguish these two things. But if you compare, for example, uh, Winston Churchill's speeches in the late 1930s, early 1940s, there are an awful lot of similarities to what Hitler's doing in the 1930s, 20s and 30s, right? And like Winston Churchill's like one of the good ones, uh, he's the hero and and Hitler's the villain, and so we identify with Churchill, and we don't identify with Hitler, though they are doing very similar things. And so I think some of those themes and genres probably need to be and thought of in those terms when we think about Trump. Like Trump, you know, uh, Jen called him an oddity, and I think in some ways he is an oddity, and in other ways, like some of the things that he does that get the most anger and vitriol from liberals and Democrats and, and progressives are, in fact, things that they do when they're trying to attack Trump. Right. We borrow some of those things at baculums and uh, at homonyms and all sorts of things. So I think part of what, what those themes and genres would be is like, how are we doing this, too? I just said that in the longest way possible. I probably could have just said it in that sentence. As I mentioned before, the possibility of Trump winning a second term is there. It's real. But I want to approach that idea from a unique angle. What has the DNC done right this election cycle? Nobody wants to answer that. I think perhaps the, the silence says, says a great deal about the answer to that question. Well, okay, I have an answer. <laughs> In some ways, I think it doesn't matter. Um, you know, Donnie mentioned Rachel, how do you say her name? Bitkoffer? Yeah, thank you. Um, and, you know, I've really learned a lot from her negative partisanship model. And I, I've been thinking about this question a lot over the last year or so, right? Like, if negative partisanship is where we're at and voters are voting um, against the opposition more than they're voting for their own candidate. And if everyone is energized and activated, then, you know, what's the role of rhetoric here, <laughs> right? Like what's the role of party organization? What's the role of, of any of these things? Um, you know, and, and 
in, yeah, like, does the apparatus of the party even matter at this point? And I don't know if, if that's true, right? I don't, we're, we're sort of waiting to see about the negative partisanship model and, and how accurate um, it is. You know, I think every election is sort of a test for her. Um, but so far, it seems really persuasive um, as an interpretation. And, and you know, so I, I do wonder in a way, like, if it even matters what they say. In some ways, I think it does. Uh, I think there was a lot of people who, uh, at least in the political press, who were relieved to hear Biden's speech on Thursday at the DNC. Um, I think there were a lot of people who were relieved and surprised to see the Democratic Party um, come together when it did to nominate Biden. Uh, a lot of surprise at that, I think, and that was probably a smart strategy in the moment, particularly to box out Sanders, um, which seems to be what they wanted to do. Uh, you know, but then again, that all comes at a cost. And and part of the cost is that it might might affect the energy of the party itself, right? The people who were sub- supporters of Sanders or who wanted to see um, a younger, more progressive nominee. Part of my understanding of why Biden ended up being the choice is that you know, it really is you know, sort of going back to before Trump times, um, almost literally, right, with the Biden-Obama um, White House. And, um, and and Biden is, you know, presents himself as presidential in that sense of, you know, he adheres to the norms of presidential rhetoric and um, presents himself as the stereotypical presidential uh, president. Uh, and And I think that a lot of people are really just exhausted from the Trump presidency and they don't want to have to think about the president as much as they have thought about Donald Trump. And Biden seems like that kind of guy. You could just elect him and not really think about the presidency anymore. And then I think what we learned from the DNC, um, and I think that this also fits the moment, is that Biden is uh, a supportive and empathetic human being. Um, and that he understands suffering. That was certainly the message that was presented to us. And, and the nation is in crisis at this moment. We are suffering. And so in that way, I think that Biden does seem to be the right person, the right nominee for the moment. Uh, I didn't support him in my primary vote. You know, when I had the chance to vote, I voted for a different candidate. And at the time, I sort of made a a thread that was a little bit of a joke about you know, if you were looking around your your department conference table and you were surrounded by the Democratic nominees, you know, who would you see? And my point about Biden was he would sit with you in the hospital. You know, he would sit with you in the waiting room if you were ever there and he would wait with you. And I didn't think that was going to win. <laughs> I didn't think that that was, you know, what we needed at the time that we had the Democratic primary. Um, in Texas. But, you know, that turned out to be exactly who we needed, maybe. And uh, and that was certainly the version of, the, of Biden that we saw presented to us last week at the DNC. So I do think that they've done some things well. Uh, I, Biden is not running a, uh, you know, all Uber online campaign the way Trump does. He's he's more of a retail politician, which is hard for him in this moment. You know, so there's some struggle. But I think I've seen some things go well, too. Although the virtual convention was unconventional, (laughs) 
I thought they did a really amazing job. And in two ways in particular, the first night was a little rocky, but, but nights two through four were really well produced, which in and of itself is not a winning thing, except that I expect it to be compared to sort of, um, a little bit chaotic RMC this week. And so whether or not they'll actually bring this to the forefront or not, in fact, I suspect that they won't. Um, I think the, the comparison probably works really well for the DNC. If the RNC turns out how I expect it to, and maybe it won't, it's, it's, I'm projecting obviously, but if what you're comparing is, sort of well-polished, well-produced DNC versus a chaotic uh, sort of scattershot RNC, then that works well in the comparison between a norm setting, a norm following Biden candidate, like Jen was talking about, versus the president that you have to think about every day. Uh, and I agree with her that I think a lot of people don't want to think about their president every day. It doesn't matter what president it is. They don't want to think about the president every day. The other thing that I think they did really well, um, and that and the, the virtual convention helped them do this really well, is that they showcased the diversity, not just the diverse people, but the diverse diversity of the country, the diverse land, the diverse um, people, the diverse food, the diverse uh, this sort of like wide diversity of the country and what Biden needs to do, what Biden wants to do is to bring a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds with a lot of different priorities under the tent of the Democrats. And that is one way to do it. And so I'll just, I'll just take one even more specific example that stood out to me is there were no fewer than three disabled speakers who were given prime convention space and they they illustrate i mean they showed their disability so certainly uh bryden the young man with the um, stutter on the last night was was one of them but tammy help me with her name tammy duckworth right so <laughs> Rather than having her sitting down and sort of cropping her from the, the chest up so you couldn't see that she was disabled, that she, she's a double amputee, they showcased that, right? And I was trying to think back on any candidacy, any campaign, any time in my life or even before where disability got treated as a thing that represents our country well, rather than being a thing that we sort of tuck off in the corner. And I found that really heartening. And I know that it was, um, you know, a, that's a calculated way to get people who are t tuning in to feel connected. And I, at least for me, you know, even as I knew what was happening, I still found it really compelling. And I think the DNC did that sort of thing well. Lots of people from, from um, traditionally underserved communities, lots of people who are it wasn't just like we're going to have one of everybody. It was like we're going to show a really diverse country. And I think that they did that well. So can I add to that? Because I, I feel like there's there's it, in terms of listening to, to folks speak, I was thinking 
um, DNC. I'm like, so on one hand, you have the Democratic National Committee and then you also have the Democratic National Convention. And I think that within this this discussion, those two do deserve um, mention mm-hmm. in terms of things that they may or may not have done well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, with um, the Democratic National um, Committee, I think in 2020, they did something a lot better than what they may have done in 2016. And that was um, to work with Bernie Sanders or at least some of uh, Sanders, more outspoken, more visible supporters to actually work on the party platform, uh, particularly around things like climate change. When it comes to the convention, um, yeah, we had a lot of diversity. But if folks remember when the initial list of or schedule of speakers came out, I think there was like 35 speakers. Um, we didn't have any Muslim Americans. We didn't have any Native Americans. Um, I think only a handful of people, I think maybe two or three, were actually Latino. Um, and then what ended up happening was, based upon the criticisms that the DNC had received, they ultimately changed their schedule in order to allow for a more diverse crop of speakers to be present. So while I do think they did a good job in terms of representing the diversity of America, they still got caught a little flat-footed, um, which means that, that's something that they have to work on. That, I think, huh. is the part. I mean, to me, when previous administrations, previous previous candidates have been caught flat-footed like that, what they've done is sort of like, dug in their heels. And I don't think the DNC was in any way perfect. But what happened was they released this thing and people said, whoa, 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 that does not represent our party well. And the party went, okay, well, let's do better then. And they still, I mucked it up, right? They still missed out on the chance to have some um, really well-spoken, really smart, progressive candidates. They, you know, they, they sort of threw a bone here and there, but missed real opportunities. But they did, I think, pivot well when they took the criticism. And I think my my hope, honestly, for a Biden presidency is that he will take criticism well, which has not been the case, certainly for Trump. But I also don't think it was the case for Biden very well or for Obama very well. Right. He was he was not unwilling to hear criticism, but he was also not willing to sort of make some serious changes in a lot of the cases where he should have. So I, to me, that's heartening. I agree. They, they got caught flat footed. I mean, Biden is not the forward thinking guy that you would hope for your next president, but he's also at least smart enough to know that people around him are thinking forwardly and maybe he should listen well. And so that to me is, is a benefit rather than a drawback. And maybe that's something to sort of like sort of also point out that I thought that they did really well. I think that they did a really, really good job showcasing and and, and Jennifer talked about this uh, as well, showcasing Biden's like any type of negative opinion that anybody may have had about Biden going into the, the DNC. I think that they with their programming did a really, really good job of sort of like pushing those concerns away. Which I think in the end, um, this week, we're going to get to see a little bit of a contrast to see what particular attacks like Republicans are going to be able to make based upon what happened last week. So certainly there are a range of issues guiding the political campaigns this cycle, and all these issues are interconnected. And there's not enough space in this podcast to talk about all of the issues. But I did settle on three that I thought we might discuss briefly. 
immigration reform, police brutality, and mail-in voting. So let's start with mail-in voting. What are the issues you're seeing with mail-in voting and how each party addresses those issues? What should our expectations be for this election cycle in terms of counting votes? And are there issues of credibility? I'll talk a little bit about mail-in voting, which is um, it's an interesting one because it's been a lightning rod for Democrats. Right? It's been a chance for Democrats to rally around each other despite other ideological disagreements. So in some ways, it seems to me that that's a really powerful benefit. I mean, the more that they, the, the more that the Republicans attack the post office, for example, which is, you know, all the polls show that that it's probably the most popular government institution. And so Republicans sort of like opened tinkering with it is not, I don't think, a winning issue for them. On the other hand, what they have managed to do with that is really confuse and complicate the issue of mail-in voting. So uh, I was just reading this morning that I think it was in Indiana, the Republican uh, state Republican groups have distinguished between mail-in voting and absentee voting. And if you're a mail-in voter, you have to do such a, a certain set of things and you have to have it notarized. And if you're an absentee voter, you can put it in the mail or you can drop it off at a polling place. But if you're a mail-in voter, then you can't drop it off at a polling place. And it's become really complex intentionally to make mail-in voting, even if it doesn't uh, end up in corruption, what it does is it makes it confusing and it makes it undesirable. And then it makes it possible for them to just sort of muddy things up. And if it's muddied up and people don't mail in vote, but they also don't want to go stand in line for eight hours surrounded by people who might have COVID, um, plus it's going to be November, so maybe it's cold or maybe it's raining or whatever, um, Republicans benefit, at least in the last several election cycles, from lower voter turnout. So although I think attacking the post office is, is not great strategy, the mail-in voting thing is rhetorically savvy in a lot of ways. One of the issues that President Trump campaigned heavily on in 2016 was immigration reform, specifically build the wall, right? How has this issue specifically... and as a campaign issue, right, as, as campaign rhetoric, evolved under his presidency. And you might even elaborate on how is Bannon's arrest for the Build the Wall scheme representative of the actions of this administration? I can talk a little bit about that. So I wrote about the Build the Wall thing for my book. And in examining his rhetoric on that, it was interesting to me to note you know, how American exceptionalism fit into it and how reification fit into it and, you know, those different kinds of strategies. But, you know, he presented the nation as pure, right? And and that's something that I guess you would expect, maybe. Um, <laughs> but for Trump, you know, almost everything is corrupt. And so he, he starts off from the premise that the nation is pure, but it's being contaminated. It's being infested by these dangerous others, attackers. Um, and it really activated authoritarian voters with that kind of rhetoric. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's a really interesting um, case in that it was so effective. And, and I'm not sure that it was something that he came up with on his own. I think that it had been a part of right-wing um, talking points 
certainly had been prevalent in white nationalist communities, but it had been on Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and, you know, the sort of idea that there was an immigration crisis and that there were these dangerous predators among us was was really a part of the right discourse before Trump. But um, he amplified those voices and he made it central to his campaign in 2016. I, you know, Again, just my idiosyncratic conversations with my Republican neighbors and friends here, because I do live in a conservative college town. I am surrounded by Republicans, and so I have lots of opportunities to talk to them. Um, and, you know, we, we, we asked our good Trump supporter about this on Thursday at our weekly happy hour. And he dismissed Bannon being arrested out of hand. He said, you know, it's the, the, the SDNY. It's the most corrupt, liberal, out to get Trump, you know, district in the entire United States. I don't believe any of it. Um, and, and I think that that is very consistent with what we know about motivated reasoning and, um, you know, selective attention and, you know, appeals to hypocrisy and, and how all of that is sort of functioning in our public sphere right now. He just denied it entirely. He did, he thought it was a setup and, you know, just the Trump derangements syndrome, um, you know, in effect, he didn't believe it at all. Certainly rhetoric has long been interested in borders, right? Whether they are real or imagined, physical or physiological but let's talk about police violence. What can our discipline do to combat police violence against multiply marginalized bodies, particularly black bodies? I would say one of the things that we might consider as a discipline is the fact that people see um, violence in remarkably different ways. You know, in, in terms of people um, looking at um, officer-involved shootings um, with, with um, unarmed black men, I think uh, there is a good percentage of our country that looks at it and rather than sort of thinking that the cop has done something wrong, is apt to assume that it's actually the uh, person who was unarmed who bears um, most of the responsibility in that situation, despite the fact that they have very, very little, if any, power in that situation. Um, and, and it seems really just sort of absurd and, and also um, like disheartening to sort of think that people would sort of say that they are more responsible for their death than the actual person who is an authority in, in that particular situation. So I think one of the things that we might do as a discipline is sort of contend with the ways in which people are culturally educated, trained, persuaded to not see violence um, as violence against certain communities. And, and, and I think that that might be something that we could potentially pivot towards in terms of combating um, police violence. I would build on that and say that the ways that people see violence in the larger culture, the disagreements about what constitutes violence are also happening in our discipline. And I think a lot of the sort of really observable, I guess, um, arguments that are happening. So Jen said she's, she's publishing a thing in the new uh, journal for rhetoric, politics, and culture, I think is what it's called. And that came out of a big blow up about race and racial justice having to do with the editor of rhetoric and public argumentation, public affairs, rhetoric and public affairs. And so I think a lot of this is also a lot of the disagreements and 
and arguments that are happening out in the world are also happening in the discipline. Um, and granted, we are not in the process of doing police violence, but I think part of who we have to teach about police violence is ourselves. Again, how do we as a field uh, validate certain beliefs? How do we as a field adjudicate how we're going to treat these things? Um, it's not lost on me that at least one member of our fact of, of our discipline was assaulted by police on tape. So, and, and little in the in the discipline, little has was done to support her at least at the beginning. So, I think part of this is also like we, in addition to needing to be better aware of how we're we're participating in the public sphere, I think we also have some some housekeeping and, and cleaning up to do in the discipline itself. Just to clarify, it's rhetoric in public affairs that Amy and I are publishing that article about uh, public scholarship in. Gotcha. My apologies. Oh, no worries. As we wind down our discussion, I was wondering if you all would participate in a little lightning round activity. I'm going to read a tweet from President Trump, and I want to hear your responses to that uh, that tweet. Quick, brief responses. Um, since everyone's audio only, we might start with you, Dr. Murcia, if that's okay with you. Sure. All right. The first tweet is delay the election. <laughs> I assume that's all caps with lots of exclamation points. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not. It actually, but it does have have an ellipsis. <laughs> okay. Uh, not knowing when he said that exactly. Um, yeah, delay the election is one of those authoritarian moves that Trump was making maybe three weeks ago. Uh, surprisingly, it was rebuffed by his party, which is unusual. They haven't done such a good job of um, drawing the line uh, or any lines to to hold him accountable. But on that issue, I think they realized that if they delayed the election, it would actually hurt down ballot party members. And so uh, they rejected him and what he was trying to do there. Dr. Scannell? Uh, authoritarian is the first word that comes to mind. Um, but the second sort of phrase that comes to mind is um, trial bubble. George Lakoff talks about trial bubbles. You know, he sends up things and see what the reaction is, and then that helps him to decide how to react. And I think he got a pretty good sense of how to react, although he still continues to, to sort of harp on different versions of it. I, I mean, yeah, obviously authoritarian. And, you know, my first sort of response to sort of hearing or even seeing something like that is, you know, under what authority? But again, it, as Ryan said, this is just him trying to sort of throw something out there to, to see what type of reaction we get. I mean, I think most of us know that he has no authority to do that under anything in our Constitution. But the thing is, is that most of his supporters either don't know or don't care. So it doesn't really matter. Um, it's just red meat for the base. Let's take a look at one more tweet and have responses in the same order. Here's the tweet. I always treated the Chinese virus very seriously and have done a very good job from the beginning, including my very early decision to close the borders from China against the wishes of almost all. Many lives were saved. The fake news new narrative is disgraceful and false, end quote. My response is like Nietzsche's Ubermensch, Trump has a will to brand and market. And you see a lot of that in that tweet. One of Trump's signature rhetorical moves is projection. 
and you can so the last sentence to me is is the projection the fake news new narrative is disgraceful and false um, actually describes trump's new narrative which at the time he tweeted this was that he'd shut all the borders and it saved lots of lives if that is in fact the case well there's no way that that is in fact the case it's a lie it's false and it's disgraceful um but that's a nice projective uh, example of like he changes the narrative to a lie and then accuses other people of doing it. Yeah, I, I would also kind of point out that one of the the sort of features of this tweet that is um, kind of, you know, rhetorically on brand for Trump, um, even before he was president, is this the outright racism, right? Choosing not to use the scientific name, but um, sort of branding the virus as, as coming from a particular place and uh, particular people. Also sort of projecting that people are lying when, in fact, this entire tweet is just one big lie. I mean, it's it's disgraceful to borrow a word from the tweet itself. So let's make some fraught predictions. Who wins the 2020 presidential election and why? I think that I think that honestly, I've been fairly bullish about this election only because I, I spend more time looking at um, swing state polls than I do um, anything else. And I, I, I sort of I sort of take the numbers that I'm seeing as sort of positive indicators that um, Joe Biden, and Kamala Harris will be president and vice president of the United States. With that being said, I think the reason why they would likely win over a Trump-Pence ticket um, has more to do with the fact that I think people are just really tired of Donald Trump, or at least enough people are tired of Donald Trump. And I think that there are a handful, not necessarily a lot, but a handful of suburban white voters in swing states who are tired of Trump enough and don't want to be associated with is racism, but still identify as Republicans that either will not vote or will actually vote for Joe Biden in the fall. So Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the fall, I should say. So I, I guess I'll jump in with a fraught prediction, bearing in mind that it's fraught. And I, I, the preface to this is that a lot of the major changes, a lot of the major um, effects on the 2016 election happened between the end of August and November, right? So the Comey letter, for example, and the the Billy Budd tape, those all happened after this moment in time. So like, who knows? But I'm also bullish. And I, part of my, the large part of my reasoning is about COVID. I think Trump blew it with COVID. But I think the thing that is really going to affect the electorate, honestly, is not that he blew it, but that he's trying to get to send people back to schools. And I know what he thinks he's doing is trying to strengthen the economy. But I'm trying to imagine all those suburban white women that he won in 2016, particularly the ones who are, are stay at home mothers or, you know, are really invested in their children. And Trump is saying, well, it's not important. They don't get sick. Send them all back to school so we can open up the economy again. And wondering if those, uh, not even wondering, I'm assuming that those mothers um, are going to be less inclined to want to turn out for somebody who they think is potentially trying to kill their children. So that's that's the basis of my 
fraught prediction. Yeah, I think that um, I think that Trump should not win the election. You know, one of the main predictors of whether an incumbent will be reelected is whether or not the nation thinks that it's on the right track or headed in the wrong direction. 70% of the nation right now says it's on the wrong track. You know, the economy is not good. The stock market is not the economy, despite what Trump says. Um, and then I agree with what Donnie and Ryan have said, um, you know, about the exhaustion, about the calamitous failure of the Trump administration, particularly when it comes to protecting children. The female rage in the suburbs, I think, is <laughs> is there. I think that's very accurate. And at the same time, Trump is defiant, right? He will not quit. He will not admit error. He will not apologize. He comes up with things that you would never think a person would do because he doesn't care. Uh, and he will do whatever it takes to win. And so at the same time, I can't count him out. And I really don't know how to predict fraud or not. <laughs> I can't be forced to predict it because I don't know. I don't think he should win based on, you know, political science fundamentals. At the same time, I don't think you can count him out. So I want to give one last opportunity for a conclusion statement. It can be anything that you want to mention, add, uh, that you feel like it's important that we didn't talk about anything at all. And if you don't have anything, that's okay too. But I do want to give that space now. I'll add that one of the uh, unexpected and probably unintended benefits of the Trump presidency is that I have gotten to speak with and listen to a lot more really brilliant rhetoricians than I think I would ordina ordinarily have been asked to speak and listen to. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, professionally, Trump has been great for me, despite the fact that he's terrible for my uh, heart and, and overall sense of well-being in the world. Uh, he's been great for me professionally. Thank you all so much for, for spending some time and talking politics today. featured in this episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I particularly appreciate all three panelists staying on board to record this episode after COVID delayed our initial recording date. As the Big Rhetorical Podcast embarks on Season 3, we want to talk to you. If you have a book, a project, an interesting topic to talk about, reach out to us. We are now booking guests into Season 4. If you are about to hit the job market or go up for tenure, perhaps you might join us as a part of our Emerging Scholar series. The Big Rhetorical Podcast also promotes and attends conferences and symposia. If you want to promote your event, reach out. You can find more information about The Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. And follow us on Twitter at The Big Red. Leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Season 3 of The Big Rhetorical Podcast is going to be exceptional. We have scholars from around the United States and the world ready to talk about a variety of issues in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. We hope you'll stick around. 
Until next time, always be listening rhetorically. Thank you.